Let's please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. Hear the word of the Lord. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with his generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. You may be seated. Well, let's turn to that passage now in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 12. And you know, as we were singing that last hymn, that really captures the heart of God's people as we come to His Word. Is is it not our prayer that God's words of truth would prevail over unbelief? Isn't it? Okay. I thought you'd agree quicker than that, but... As you're turning to Matthew 12, um, quick illustration for you. When, When our kids were young, not yet teenagers, we uh, took a family trip up to Canada, spent some time in British Columbia one summer, and then like everybody else, we had to line up uh, at, the, at customs to get back into the U.S., and um, the border agent on the American side uh, asked us the, the usual questions, you know, where, where have you been, and, and wh- what are you doing, and um, do, do you have anything dangerous in your uh, possession, like uh, fresh fruit, you know, <laughs> the, the usual questions that they ask. And um, we passed the test with flying colors uh, until we got to the very last question. This, this big uh, armed guard um, points in the back seat at our children and says, are these your kids? Of course there are kids. Um, can you prove it? Can you prove it? And this, this is, you know, 25 or so years ago before stuff. And so um, I said, well, I, I suppose you could ask him, you know. And uh, he, he said, just matter of fact, how, how do I know you haven't coached them into saying that they're your children? He was quite serious. And I understand why. I didn't at the time, but I, I do now. Um, I said, I don't know, maybe ask him some questions about us. And um, unfortunately, that's what he did. And um, so, so, just, so just picture this, this big, burly guy with a gun um, asking our little girl, what's your mom's birthday? And, and it wasn't like, hey, sweetie, do you know when your mom's birthday is? It was, what is your mother's birthday? 
And uh, poor Sarah, I mean, she knows mom's birthday, um, but she wouldn't have known, you know, her middle name in, in those circumstances. And, and so she stumbled a bit. And, um, I mean, this started going south on us really fast. <laughs> and, I mean, it was, it's funny now, but it wasn't funny at the time. And um, anyway, th this whole tense ordeal just kept going for a few more minutes until this other guard came over, a kinder, gentler guard, who had, had a little huddle with the first guy. And somehow together they were able to, to discern that um, we, we were the parents who now knew uh, not to go to Canada, you know? <laughs> and uh, so we, we left. And, you know, I, I, I'll never forget that for this reason. Um, I'll never forget the disposition that first guard spoke with. I mean, I, I, I don't think it would have mattered what we had said uh, or, or what we had offered as proof, I mean, he was just determined not to believe us. And, um, you know, w without some outside help, he, he was simply determined in his, in his unbelief. And, and you know, there, there are people like that when it comes to the truth of God. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what they're told. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what they see. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what experiences they've had. Their hearts are predisposed toward unbelief. And, you know, we've met such people already in Matthew's gospel, haven't we? Haven't we? Unbelief often is clothed in religion. Settled unbelief often is quite churchy. And we've seen in Matthew 12 that the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, had, have just seen Jesus in power liberate a demon-possessed man. They've seen Jesus restore or create vision in eyes that had been blind. Uh, they've, they've seen Jesus give that mute man speech. Uh, the scripture says our king, Jesus, has come into this world to destroy the works of the devil. And, he, and he'd been doing that in real time in his earthly ministry, uh, right in front of the Pharisees. And yet these hard-hearted religious leaders of Israel remained settled in their unbelief. Prove it, they kept saying. Prove that you are our Messiah. And so we come to verse 38 of Matthew 12. We hear them. That this is the voice of unbelief. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now think about what's going on here. If you remember where we were last week, Jesus has just called these fellows blasphemers because they attributed his divine work in, in healing this demon-possessed man they attributed the work of God the Son to Satan. And, and, and Jesus says, hey, your, your words will condemn you on the day of judgment. These blasphemous words betray a wicked heart, despite your outward religious appearance. Well, they don't have an answer for that truth that they just heard from Jesus. And so what do they do? They change the subject. Teacher. 
I mean, that, that's just flattery, isn't it? They don't, they don't respect Jesus as a teacher. It's, it's all for show. In fact, they've been plotting to kill Jesus. Matthew has already told us that. We want to see a sign that is an insincere dodge. They're changing the subject because they don't want to address the reality that Jesus has disclosed their rotten hearts that are betrayed by their blasphemous words. You know, it's not unlike, um, you know, in John's gospel, we read of the woman at the well and, and Jesus, you know, calls her out on the fact that she's, that she's not married. In fact, she's been uh, with several men. The guy she's with now is not her husband. And what does she say? Hey, what do you think of worship? Where do you think people should worship? It's a total dodge. Through deflection and, and unreasonable demands, uh, the, the rebellious, um, faithless heart is exposed. And I urge you to just think about how some people respond to the gospel today, how they respond to Jesus today, how they deflect and, and maybe even demand uh, in response to the call of repentance and faith. And I mention this because it's very possible in a gathering with this many people, uh, maybe you're here this morning. And you have had friend after friend after friend love you enough to tell you about Christ and what he has done so that their sins are forgiven. They've received a new life, the very life of God now. And they have the hope of heaven, an eternal home one day. But, but, but you're always quick to change the subject. I mean, whenever this Jesus stuff comes up, it's, you know, oh, look, something else. And sitting in a church doesn't bother you too much. And singing the songs doesn't bother you too much. You don't mind feigning interest. It's just that when the question turns to you, your heart, who reigns in your heart? Well, it's, it's, it's time to change the subject then, isn't it? You're hearing this. Look how Jesus responds to the hardened hearts of these scribes and Pharisees. Verse 39, he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. The Jews throughout their history had been the blessed recipients of all kinds of signs from God, affirming his presence, affirming his work among them. Mo remember Moses once asked the Lord, how is Pharaoh going to believe you sent me? Well, th throw your staff down. See, you see how it turns into a snake. How would Israel be assured of, of God's presence. Remember, God said to Moses, my presence will go with you. How, how would Israel, God's people, know that as they left Egypt? Well, a, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. 
And God is pleased to encourage his people in these ways. How would those shepherds know that God's promised Messiah had come? There will be the sign for you, the shepherds were told. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Jesus' miracles themselves were signs in that they signified uh, the, 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 the validity of, of Christ's identity and Christ's ministry. So, so the scandal here, you still with me? The scandal here is not um, God is unwilling to give a sign. The scandal here is the true nature of the people asking for the signs. And, and, and there is a caution here. Um, you know, there, there's, a, there's this whole signs and wonders movement today, you know, where people are just, um, you know, more interested in seeing signs from God, it seems, than they're interested in God himself. I'm just saying, that's extra. That's not part of the message. Jesus sees through the true motives of those who are seeking signs and experiences from God. These Scribes and Pharisees, just imagine this. They've just seen Jesus, God the Son, cast out a demon from a man and give him sight and give him speech. More so, however, they have seen Jesus heal lepers. They've seen Jesus restore limbs. They know that he's raised a a little girl from the dead. Um, they, They know he's fed thousands uh, with, with just a few loaves and fishes. They, they know he's turned water to wine and um, they don't need a sign. They're predisposed to unbelief. It will not matter what they see. It will not matter what they experience. A sign from God will not in itself change a rebellious heart. An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign. And I want us to just pause for a moment and think, think this thing through. Is this just for us a bit of interesting history from the experience of unbelieving Israel in the first century Or is it possible that this might actually have something to do with us as well? Well, certainly, this helps us understand why Jesus will eventually say uh, through a parable, uh, the the, the parable of the the tenants or the, the vine growers. He says to Israel, the Israel of his generation, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. You see, the the kingdom of heaven was then and is now to be an international kingdom. Have you heard that? Gathered from the nations, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, united by faith and allegiance to Christ as king that this is the kingdom of heaven and that this is the blessing promised to Abraham. 
But I think there is something else that confronts us today. These men should have been convinced by their own Bibles that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact God's Messiah standing right in front of them, their Savior, their King. Jesus fits the Bible's, let's say, Old Testament, the template God had given for his Messiah, his anointed king, perfectly. Let me just give you a few examples, but there are, are, are scores of them. Um, born in Bethlehem was our Jesus, just like the prophet Micah had, had foretold. Uh, and, and then um, escaping uh, a murderous plot uh, from um, King Herod. Um, it's kind of the... the the tone of Moses' experience in that, don't you think? And Matthew has already told us that Jesus returning from Egypt back to uh, Galilee uh, was a fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy. Out of Egypt I have called my son. This is in their Bible, the Pharisees. Jesus' ministry was announced by a chosen messenger, John the Baptist, or if you prefer, a voice crying in the wilderness, just like the prophet Isaiah had said. In in fact, by the time we get to chapter 12 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has already shown himself to be the true Israel, the the faithful Israel. His very life uh, echoed uh, the experience of Israel's exodus and wilderness journey. I don't want to belabor it because we've already seen it in Matthew's gospel, but just remember Israel wandered for for how many years? How long? 40 years? You've read that. Uh, and, and, and repeatedly fell to temptation. And it didn't take very long either, did it? Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness without food, tempted by Satan in, uh, in person, you could say, and, and yet never fell, Christ conquered Satan in the wilderness for his people. Where his people have failed, Christ has been victorious. Jesus is the true and greater Moses. We, we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, uh, really a, a divine commentary on the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. Uh, Jesus is the true and greater Adam. We squeezed that a little bit when we looked at Matthew's uh, genealogy, the, the, the very start of the book. Um, he's the second Adam, isn't he? Our Jesus. Jesus is the true and, and greater David. He, he, he's the blessed man of Psalm 1. He, he's, he's the Lord's anointed king of Psalm 2. For his entire life, Jesus had been demonstrating all of this right under the noses of those who knew the Bible better than anybody in their day, at least intellectually. And yet God's word was not enough. And I wonder if there are any here this morning for whom God's word is just not enough. You're just settled in your unbelief. It's not enough for me to have the Bible. 
I've got to have something else. I've got to have some other proof. Listen, evidence and logic alone are insufficient to bring anyone to repentance and allegiance to Christ. That's what we're seeing here in Scripture. That does not mean, talk amongst yourselves for a moment. That does not mean that evidence and logic don't matter. Don't, Don't misunderstand. It's just that evidence and logic are not enough to save sinners. And it's possible that there are some here today still thinking that you might repent and surrender to Christ if only God would give you a sign that, that this gospel stuff is really true. That you, you know you're a sinner, your conscience tells you that. But, th- but there is a Savior, this Jesus, who's come in power for you. And, he, and, and you've been saying to yourself, you know, if God would just part the clouds today, if he would just somehow uh, verify all of this by experience, the kind of experience I want to have, if God would just heal what or whatever or whoever I want healed, if God would just give me what I want given, if God would somehow erase the consequences of this life that I've lived apart from him, well, well then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Not without some outside help. And I I caution you, friend. You who are still saying, give me a sign, give, give me an experience. Jesus will not perform on demand to prove himself to insincere, hard hearted, rebellious people. And you say, well, yeah-huh. If, if, if he would just do this thing, well, then I would be his. No, no, you wouldn't. Look at what you've already ignored. Let's go there. Has not God clearly revealed himself to you in creation? Do you realize the scripture says that in creation itself... The attributes of God are clearly seen so that you are without excuse? Has not God clearly revealed himself to you in conscience? Are you hearing your conscience? Has not God revealed himself to you in his word? Whether you sing it or just listen to it, maybe even read it, You see, the hard-hearted, impenitent sinner does not need a sign. She needs a new heart. He needs something more than a thrilling, dramatic, felt experience. That's not enough. And it won't be. God himself must renew the heart if a sinner is to receive Christ. And Christians, this informs our prayers for those who are lost. I think whenever we're studying the Bible, 
it's wise to look back every once in a while and see where we've been. And, and Jesus has, has already said in this section of, of Matthew's gospel, it seems that Matthew 10, 11, and 12 are, are, are to do with the different ways people receive Christ or, or don't receive Christ. Jesus has already said in this part of Matthew's gospel, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. If, if that isn't sovereign election, I don't, I don't know what is. But, but, you know, Jesus says, hey, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. See, Jesus is not only uh, the true and greater David and, and, and Adam and, and Moses and Israel. He, he's also the, the, the true and greater Jonah. Says who? Says Jesus. There's something about each of these people's lives, as we read of them in our Old Testament, that makes them types of Christ. What, what in the world is that about? The typology simply means that the way God uh, spoke and acted in the, in the Old Testament uh, was a preparation, was an anticipation of his, his final revelation in the person and work of Jesus. It's all over the Old Testament. You read the experiences of some of God's people and you think, well, my goodness, that, that seems a bit like Jesus. Jonah was a prophet from Galilee, wasn't he? Where's Jesus from? You want to say heaven, and that's right. But, but in his humanity, Jesus was from Galilee. Jo Jonah was sent by God to wicked Nineveh uh, with a call to repentance. And Jesus was sent by the Father to wicked people, to people alienated from God, uh, by their sin and what has Jesus been proclaiming in, in the time that we've spent in Matthew's gospel repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand listen because this is God's word to you repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand the king has come who's the king? Jesus is the king and the kingdom is here because the king has come. Now, the kingdom is not expressed in its fullness yet. But this kingdom exists even now in the heart of every man and woman and boy and girl in whom Christ reigns as king. And for some of you, this is where you start asking, hey, how about those mariners? Where are we going to... You change the subject. Because now this is to do with you. Judgment is coming. And, and God's anointed king, Jesus, has come the first time with a heart full of mercy toward you. And so he says to you, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, what was Jonah's experience? Jonah was the reluctant prophet who didn't want to go to Nineveh. Jonah was a racist, and he hated Ninevites because they weren't like him. And he did not want them to receive mercy from God. Uh, so Jonah ran from his mission, didn't he? Ended up on a ship going the opposite direction of God's calling. And uh, God sends a great storm uh, that imperiled everybody on that ship. And, and Jonah, who had a conscience that still worked. Does your conscience still work? Jonah's did. He knew on that ship, in that storm... I think this is my fault. I think you guys should toss me over and it'll probably go well with you. And I don't know how much convincing they needed in light of the storm, but off he went. And he sank down and he sank down and he sank down into the dark, into the deep of that raging sea. What was... What was Jesus' experience? Well, our, our king was in no way reluctant. He gladly left the glory of his heaven and embraced his mission from the Father to be born into humanity, to live among us untouchables in light of God's holiness, and to bring God's message of repentance and mercy everywhere he went. And then Jesus, who came because every single one of us, like the sailors on that ship with Jonah, is imperiled by this great sea of God's wrath for our sin. That's what awaits us without rescue. And what has Jesus done? He's offered himself as our substitute, hasn't he? What did Jonah say? You guys throw me in, it'll be okay with you. What has our Jesus done for us? He took upon himself the Father's wrath for your sin. He died on that bloody cross, our Jesus, our King. And in death, Christ's body was swallowed up by that tomb just as Jonah had been swallowed up by that fish. Don't miss that. The fish was not Jonah's punishment. The sea was. The fish was Jonah's rescue. And I urge you in your mind's eye to see the empty tomb of Jesus and see the agent of your rescue. For Jesus, but you as well, you who believe the tomb is the agent of rebirth and eternal life. You need no other sign. Well, we're going in a direction now, aren't we? 
just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that sea monster, that fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, I mean, the kids helped us with this, was spat out. Isn't that what they said? Spat out. Scripture says vomited. I thought they would go there. Jonah himself was the sign, in other words, to wicked Nineveh. How do you ignore a guy who's come to you all bleached and blotchy from being in the belly of a fish, uh, God sparing him so he can tell you one last time, repent and turn to God? Well, incredibly, Nineveh repented. It's probably the greatest evangelical response in the entire Old Testament. Absolutely astounding. Simply hearing a few words of truth from the living God through the mouth of a crummy prophet who really didn't even want to be there because he was kind of a racist jerk. And yet there's something far greater than Jonah what of Jesus? How can you not believe the one who promised he would die for the sins of his people and then rise again on the third day, never to die again, eager to restore, eager to forgive, eager to share his eternal life with all who come to him? And then he did exactly that. Listen, you need no other sign. That there is no greater sign. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate and final sign God gives his people. And I wonder this morning, is, is the Spirit of God a bit like that second border guard I told you about coming now with some outside help for unbelieving hearts. Hearts predisposed to ignore the truth of God. Please hear the Spirit's voice through the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, says Paul. Jesus rose from the dead. The, the tomb could not contain our Jesus. Think about this. Why do you suppose God preserved Jonah in the fish for three days and three nights? That's kind of random, isn't it? Simply because Jonah was to be a type, Jonah was to be a picture of the greater than Jonah, our Jesus. 
And so I, I, I ask you again, and I, and I do mean to belabor the point, how have you responded to this sign of Jonah? And I'm not talking about the fish now. I'm, I'm talking about the empty tomb of Jesus. Are you still insisting upon more revelation from God? If you are, just be warned. And this is not my material. Look at, look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation, Jesus' generation, at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Think about this. Heathen Nineveh... Um, in response to just a few words of truth from Jonah, God's own words, repented. Privileged Israel rejected the manifestation of God himself. God the Son, in his humanity, walked with them and, and talked to them and performed miracle after miracle after miracle in their presence Jesus is far greater than Jonah. Jesus is far greater than Solomon. Look at verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. King Solomon, you remember um, from your reading in, in 1 Kings, um, inherited... Uh, the, the throne of Israel from, from his father David. And he had asked God for a gracious and understanding heart. And my goodness, did, did the Lord grant that? People came from all over the world uh, to hear and experience the wisdom of God through Solomon. And Solomon's God-given wisdom, you know, much of it recorded in, in, in the book of Proverbs, uh, was renowned that way. And so there would be Gentile rulers who would come to Israel, including this queen of the south or the queen of Sheba. You know, what, what was her deal? Well, she traveled um, from the southern tip of Arabia to Israel. That's about 1,200 miles over scorched sand. Uh, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And the scripture says, the truths concerning the name of Yahweh. How interesting. She wanted to know Solomon's God. And as Solomon answered all of her questions, she concluded this. This is 1 Kings 10, verse 9. Blessed be Yahweh your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because Yahweh loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you, Solomon, king. And so, so here again, we have Gentiles um, learning of the one true God, responding rightly to what they hear of the one true God simply because of the teaching of one of his messengers. Jonah was an imperfect messenger. That's an understatement, probably. Turns out Solomon was too. And we don't have time for all of that, but it's, it's in the book. 
And Jesus' point of contrast is obvious. The, the Jews of his day revered Solomon almost as much as they revered his daddy, David. Pagans, Gentiles, like the Queen of the South, turned to God in, in response to the, the, the wisdom of God through a mere man, a, 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 a palpably fallen person. And yet the Jewish people in Jesus' day, especially these scribes and Pharisees, not all of them, but especially these scribes and Pharisees, had the God-man, the, the Son of Man, standing right in front of them, wisdom himself, demonstrating the very power of God, and they rejected him. I think it's very interesting. Are you, are you still with me? Every once in a while, nod or something. Um, I think it's interesting that these scribes and Pharisees had the book of Proverbs, uh, much of it written by Solomon, who personifies wisdom this way. Listen to Proverbs 8. Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his way before his deeds of old. From everlasting I was installed, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. And, and you just have to ask yourself, well, who, who is this wisdom that, that, that Solomon you know, poetically speaks of here? Well, it's, it's God the Son. It, it, it's our Jesus. Our Jesus is all over the Old Testament. You might say, hard to miss. So don't miss the basic principle here that Jesus is teaching. All people are accountable to God to respond rightly to the revelation received from him. And so I have to tell you, so I don't want to be a crummy pastor. I have to tell you on the authority of Scripture that you are responsible to respond rightly to the truth that you have heard about Jesus. How about those mariners, you say? It's not so funny, is it? Have you received heaven's king? Or are you still waiting for another sign? Another experience? If God would just, though you have the very word of God preached to you, as did Nineveh, as did the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba. Warren Wearsby put it a lot rougher than I did. He says, the greater the opportunity, the greater the judgment. Let me just end with this. And I'm quite serious. This is it. Um, maybe you did come here today a bit like that first border guard I told you about, the one that creeped out our daughter. Um, settled, predisposed in unbelief. And yet today of all days, God only knows why, but today of all days, some outside help has come. The Holy Spirit has come to soften your heart so that you might see yourself 
in contrast to God's holiness, you see yourself now as a sinner who is in peril of judgment. And you see in Jesus a rescue, the only rescue you have. And, and you think, well, my goodness, what, what, what do I do? Repent and turn to Jesus. Well, it can't be that simple. Oh, it is. It is. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let me just end with somebody else's words here. I'm always quoting these old dead guys, but there, there's this fellow, Patrick Fairbairn, who, who was a Scottish minister in the 1800s who wrote lots of stuff, but he wrote, he wrote an entire book about um, a commentary on Jonah, I guess you could say, but he has an entire chapter on this sign of Jonah that we've been looking at in Matthew 12. And he, and he says this, Jesus dying and descending into the chambers of death is the sign of God's judgment flaming out against the transgressions of the guilty. The same Jesus risen and glorified is the sign of mercy rejoicing against judgment and ready to flow out in streams of life and blessing to the penitent. I like that. Because that's my hope. And this Jesus is your hope. If you'll turn to him. Well, that's it. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the sign of Jonah. We thank you so much for the empty tomb. We thank you, Jesus, that you have allowed yourself to be tossed into that sea of wrath that we might never need taste wrath from God. And Lord, we thank you that your tomb is empty yet today. You're alive. You're seated in glory. And you're coming again to establish your kingdom in the fullest sense. And Lord, until you return, you are pleased to extend mercy to people like us to people who settled in unbelief are awakened by your spirit to receive life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would grant repentance among us this day for your name's sake. I pray that you would save sinners today. I pray that your kingdom would grow among us today. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name.